Christina? Awesome. Hello, everybody. Why don't you leave them back there, honey? You can just stay. Uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm 106, and that will be our passage for today. Psalm 106. Let's begin with prayers we do. Let's thank God for our time together to hear his word and to continue in our study so that we may be enlightened in the subject of prayer and also as we pursue it to gain more and deeper knowledge of our of our God and our relationship with him. And so uh, with all that in mind, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for another day in your gracious world. Thank you that you are omnipresent, you are everywhere, and that the world will always be under your control. You have allowed things to come against you, to go against you, but we know, Father, that these things are temporary. And so while we pursue our relationship with you, Father, we are assured of victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are assured of eternal life and that we have that life with you now. And what gets us distracted and the things that distract us, Father, we seek through your word today to learn how to not be distracted and to not be uh, have our minds go astray from what they should focus on and truly enjoy, that we may overcome the things that oppose you and therefore oppose your life in us. And uh, we... Seek, Father, to uh, be overcomers in that way. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As we have been uh, continuing to look at the book of Psalms and prayer in the book of Psalms, uh, we've seen that in the Psalms that we have uh, God's uh, law was last time on Sunday that in the Psalms is, is the prayer petitions about God's law. And our um, relationship to that law and our need of obedience to that law to understand it and therefore to embrace it. And so this is an area of prayer where all of us are going to always need improvement in. A greater love of God and his law. Meaning, and of course when I say law again, I mean all of the scripture, everything, all commandments uh, that are upon us. Uh, we also saw, uh, or we'll see now, God's uh, uh, psalms that depict his history. And for some reason, I didn't put that on the first slide. But uh, it's Psalm 78, 105, and 106. Uh, Psalm 78, 105, and 106 tell us about the history of God's people on the earth. And of course, these center on the history of Israel. Uh, but they're the only client nation of God. They're the only nation ever to be a people that God called his people. I mean, outside of the church. And uh, <clears throat> and so what we have in those Psalms, 78, 105, and 106, is a synopsis or a snapshot of the history that we see in the rest of the scripture concerning Israel. Uh, that history starts in... In Exodus, uh, we we see it in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, uh, really Leviticus too. Although Leviticus is hard to get through if you read it, if you're trying to read it, but um, and then continuing through Joshua, Judges, and so on, through Samuel and Kings, Chronicles, and we have this. Uh, not everything that has happened in history, because the Bible is not a history book. Um, but it is selective, uh, where God gives, selectively gives us the history that we need to know. And the history that we need to know is always pointed at his redemption, uh, really the drama of redemption that is drawn out throughout history. Uh, and as we see, if well, we might ask ourselves at the, at the start, if this is about Israel's history, what has it got to do with me? And it, it turns out that God's dealings with Israel are how he's going to deal with all his people. 
and and so we see that uh, we would never we, the Bible does not allow us to conclude that God disciplined Israel for reasons that He won't discipline you, or that He blessed Israel for reasons that He won't bless you and me, uh, or a church, or a family, or any group of people, uh, and so. This, uh, these psalms tell us about the history of God, but uh, none of them deal exclusively. Just like the psalms with the law, they don't deal with just the law. There's the law and how it applies to us. It's not just all about the law. But, and, and same with these psalms. They're not just all about history. They have a great deal of them deal with history, but there's an application to it in each one. So all that God has done for his people, first off, is what he will do for us. Whether it's discipline, uh, uh, you know, the pressure that he'll bring, uh, testing, blessing, uh, all, all, all that God would do or deals with people, we can see it here. And this, just like understanding the law of God, gives us when we understand the law of God, we understand the boundaries that we're supposed to have, you know, what, we're, what we ought to do and what not do. And so we don't have to be confused about that. Whether we follow them or we don't, we, at least we lose the anxiety of trying to figure it out for ourselves. The law of God tells us what is right and what is wrong. The history of God tells us how he will deal with his people. And we don't have to wonder about that. So, we could, you know, if you have... Uh, some idea in your mind that you know you're going to sin and live a lifestyle of sin against God, and you're the one that's going to get away with it. Uh, we have a whole Old Testament that tells you nobody gets away with it. Actually, we have a whole history of redemption that says no one gets away with anything, uh, and so you can lose the anxiety of wondering if you're the one that gets away with everything because you're not. None of us are. Uh, <clears throat> so. God wants us, I mean, he wouldn't put this history in his scripture if he didn't want us to know it. You know, and I understand, a lot of, some people like history, some people don't, um, some people are, I guess, are non-committed. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, the, the history here is not so that we can impress people with facts or even, I guess uh, to be interested in it, that's not the end goal. The end goal is to learn from it. Uh, what we're, when we're looking at the history of God, we're looking at how God deals with mankind and how God deals with his people upon whom he has set his law. God did not set his law upon the other nations, but against Israel or on Israel. And, and so he wants us to understand that. Uh, it was a custom in every Passover that a child would ask the person who headed the Passover meal, and, and you know everybody was waiting for this to happen before they partook of the meal. There was one of the young people were to ask the the one heading the meal, "Why do we celebrate this day?" And then that was a cue for the person to explain, uh, even though everybody already knew it. He was to remind everybody and tell the tale of Israel's freedom from Egypt, right, what Passover really was. And, and to make sure, even for younger people or older people, whatever, that they wouldn't just be going through the motions at the Passover Seder, that they wouldn't just be there to eat, that they would understand that what they were doing had real significance. And the same is true for us. Now, we don't celebrate the Passover, uh, but to understand how God has dealt with his people. So uh, how we pray these, first, we're just going to focus on Psalm 106 today. Although, you know, there's, there's a couple of others. I, and I think like um, the past uh, couple instances of these, I'll take at least two classes to run through them. Because here, just like the other instances or, or themes in the book of Psalms that we see that are themes that we can pray about, they're, it's really important. They're major themes in the Psalms, which are major themes throughout the Bible, which are major themes for our entire lives. Psalm 106 summons us, first off, to thanksgiving. We say, well, we, all right, yeah, we know we should be thankful. But this is specific to being thankful for what God has already done. Uh, and 
this history of Israel actually becomes a gateway into looking at the history of our own lives. Meaning over the last 10, 20, 30 years, you know, what has God done in your life? And to reflect upon that. And, and I, I should say that, you know, we, we've looked at praying about the law, uh, <clears throat> praying here about the history of God's history and the one before that that we looked at that's escaping my mind for some reason, that if and plus we have the Lord's Prayer, plus we have our personal prayers uh, in our meditations, we could be at this all day, right? But the these themes, you know, might not come up for you every day, but none of them should be neglected. You know, if I'm talking to God about his commands or praying to him about his commands, I might not... And in the same prayer or even in the same day be praying to him or thinking or, or speaking with him about his history. Um, but throughout the time of my praying, which is my lifelong conversation with God, I should frequently do all of these. And that's why the Psalms are a guide. We're not going to pray the entire Psalms, all 150 of them every day. But the ones that we grab hold of from day to day are going to lead us to pray about things that we probably... that probably not would have thought of. So again, Psalm 106 summons us to thanksgiving, to praise, and again, these are connected to God's doings or dealings with his people, to commitment, uh, and that call, like, as we know in Israel, who did well. I say, well I know this is a different age. This is the age of grace. They were under the age of the law. But we are just as commanded to be committed to God's way as they. Uh, actually, I would say even more so. And, you know, who did well in Israel? And it were those who were committed. There was no one sinless. But, you know, why was David the great king that he was? Because he was after the Lord's heart. He was committed. Though he made major blunders. Uh, then there's the call to prayer itself, that, which is, you know, petition, which is a word for asking, is, um, is us seeking. You know, and, and that's an open category. Petition is us seeking from God whatever is legitimate to seek from him. And then we have confession of sin. Uh, as we look at our history and the history of others, we see sin all over the place. And this isn't about like confessing uh, old sins. Uh, you know, that's it's not it's not like well we'll we'll talk about that. But um, the confession of sin here we're not we're not talking about um, making sure that you keep a list with God and making sure you confess every single sin that you've committed, as if you could possibly do that. But it is this is an acknowledgement of us as sinners. Sinners in the past for which we've been forgiven, and we don't forget that. And not that we're looking at past mistakes and, and brooding over them. That, not that either. But that we know that we have weaknesses, and those weaknesses have been with us for a long time. And maybe there's some weaknesses that we have overcome. And that's something to remember, is that God had given you the power to overcome, that he led you somehow to rid yourself of that bag of bricks that was the sinful weakness. And that shouldn't be forgotten. That, you know, that's not you brooding over the past. That's you thanking God for his deliverance in the past. We find that in these Psalms. They thank God for delivering Israel. And there are hundreds. Of, the one who wrote Psalm 106 here would be hundreds of years after uh, the Exodus but yet he still thanks God for delivering Israel. And uh, so there's confession of sin. We'll deal with that a little, with a little deeper. And the call for God's help. Uh, and this, uh, in general terms in this psalm, this is a God, I need deliverance. Uh, and of course, when, when we need deliverance, we're usually a little more specific. Uh, but... You know, that, that's why it can be general in this psalm because, or, or you know, any time that you're being instructed on prayer, that, you know, I'm going to know at the time what I need to be delivered from. 
and then I and then I can be specific. And that, that's a call to God to help you. And that is absolutely legitimate as we see here. And all of this is with his redemptive history in mind. It's a neat term for God's history in the Bible is redemptive history. Now, how is God dealing with his people with a one goal in mind, which is to redeem them? Uh, so for Israel, for instance, we're uh, looking at a history from the time they left Egypt to the cross of Christ. You know, that's like the history of Israel. And the church should begin, you know, begins at Pentecost very soon for the 50 days after the death of Christ. And so that whole time is roughly around 1,400 years, 1,500 years is the history of Israel. So Psalm 106, 1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is, is everlasting. Now, this word, loving kindness, we're going to see it a lot. I probably could do a class on it. I mean, I know I definitely could. I'm wondering if I should. But uh, it's a, uh, the Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant, love, or steadfast love. His loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever you see loving kindness, you'd be thinking of God's promise to Israel. And when God promised to Israel, he also promised to the Gentile nations. You know, the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you is a part of that, that chesed or loving kindness. God is not going to go back on his promise, on his covenant. Uh, and so his, and that's why it's everlasting. So again, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? or can show forth all his praise. How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. So this is just the first three verses, or the first three couplets, uh, of which this psalm, as you see it, is, is quite long. And so we're just going to deal with the front, really, and then the end. And I, I, I would hope, was hoping that I'd get to read through it. I doubt I will uh, in the time that we have today. But... <coughs> I highly recommend you do, and take your time with it. It won't take you all that long to read through and have your own memory be uh, stimulated uh, from your own understanding of Israel's history and what God did with them. Uh, So first we have thankfulness. Uh, Thankfulness for God's covenant, sorry, for God's goodness and covenant love. Um. How was God to Israel, and did they deserve it? And we know we know the answers to that. God was good to them. They never deserved it. And as much as God was good to them, in general, it's not everybody in Israel, but in general, as we see in the narratives, and as we see in this psalm, that they kept rejecting him. They kept forgetting him. They kept uh, being unfaithful and worshiping idols and so on. Uh, so what you see in God's dealing with his people in the historical narrative in Scripture, which the psalm summarizes, is a surety of your life also. God does not change. So just like knowing his law gives you clear understanding of good and bad, his history gives you clear understanding of his dealings with you and what you can expect. Now, if I expected good from God from living a life of sin... I don't understand his history. If I expect a life that's mediocre and unfulfilling and not filled with you know, joy and fullness, and I have kept his word and loved him, uh, then I don't know it either. I don't know his history. So you know, the history of God here reveals to us clearly how God is going to deal with us. So again, if you think great, for instance... If you think grace is a word that means you can live a sinful life and that grace covers you, when all the pain and discipline catch up with you eventually, and it will, and has come upon you, if you're shocked, then you don't know God's revealed history. If you loved God in his word and it never bore any fruit or miraculous blessing in your life and you were shocked, 
then you wouldn't know God's redemptive history. God's history reveals to us what makes for a life of blessing in the human race and what makes for a life of cursing. And he says this clearly to Israel in the prophets and even in Moses. And I set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. And so in the church we say, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore because we're under grace. And that's not true. That's, that's not what grace means. Uh, we, and we all discover that. If you thought that grace was a word that meant you had a license to sin and that God, uh, there'd be no real consequences to it, then uh, you find out that that's not true. So uh, believers who know, and so getting back to thankfulness, believers who know the history of God are thankful people. They, they know the history of God in their own lives, and they know the history of God in Scripture. And they're thankful to God for his uh, goodness and his mercy and his forgiveness and how he has dealt with his people uh, and dealt with me and you in general. This makes us thankful. And thankful people are happy people. Uh, ignorance is what makes us unthankful. Uh, and ignorance... Uh, makes people self-absorbed, and that's why ignorance is always accompanied by want. Uh, and I, I always think of that, ignorance and want are the two children that are under the cloak of the ghost of Christmas future. Now, is that the future guy? The, who's the death guy? I can't remember. The, you know, the death one. That, uh, Dickens has uh, these two children under, under his robe that are uh, ignorance and want and that they always go together. Uh, And it's very true. When we don't know the history of God and his dealing with his people, that uh, we will eventually, we'll find ourselves actually quite miserable. Uh, It's a a real issue with the human race where we think that, you know, all of world history happens in our lifetime. That's why people, you know, people get wrong, very wrong ideas. Uh, and they think within, you know, the, the 40 or 50 years that they lived that all the important things in the world must have happened in those 50 years. Uh, and and it's, it's sad to not know that. Why would God include so much history in his scripture if he didn't want us to know it? And the writers in the New Testament, just to make sure that we don't think that we can throw the Old Testament out, is written in multiple places. It says these things were written for your instruction. And especially in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at tomorrow, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to the history of the Exodus generation and says that these things were written for your instruction so that you may not crave the things that they did, may not crave the evil things that they did. And so we're supposed to know it. So uh, now next, we have thankfulness first off. And then we have praise. Praise is not just us saying the word to God, but to actually uh, truly uh, desire to worship him, to praise him, to honor him, to exalt him in our own souls and to do that legitimately and truthfully. So we also find praise for the miracles of God. As he says here, it's in verse 2. No, yes. Well, first one, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So that's thankfulness for his goodness. And his loving kindness is everlasting. So thankfulness for his goodness and loving kindness. And then he says, Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? So in verse 2, the psalmist is telling us that the mighty deeds of the Lord are so numerous and so uh, incredible that we can't really speak of them in full. It doesn't mean that we can't speak of them at all. It means that to the fullness of them, to all of them, could we possibly speak of all of it could we possibly show forth the proper praise that we should? And, and we would all admit that no, we can't, because we couldn't understand really all of that which God does. So his mighty deeds, which we 
would uh, show forth here as miracles. And if we look at them as miracles, we might have another issue in our, in our lives. First, you know, we say, we're not Israel, so what does this history have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. And uh, miracles, I haven't seen any. You know, I wasn't around in the early church where we see the majority of the miracles in the Bible. Uh, so, therefore, uh, I wasn't around when Christ was here. Uh, I haven't seen any miracles. But, actually, you have, and so have I. If we define the miracles as the hand of God working in our lives to influence or change us, to change us within or to change circumstances around us, to come through for us uh, in a supernatural way. Really, a miracle is any work that God does which is not natural to the natural scheme of things. So, you know, if I drop something and it falls to the ground, I wouldn't call it a miracle. That's the natural function of gravity. But when God does things in my life, those things are miracles, whether they're little or great. And I don't think we can really put them on a scale anyway. So this is praising God for his uh, daily works in our lives. In prayer, we praise God for his daily works in our lives. Uh, And I am absolutely convinced of this scripturally and from experience that if your eyes are open, you see these every day that God has done things and is doing things in our lives on a daily basis. Uh, And the problem with us, and it's a great error in Christianity, and I think it's, it's up there with one of the top whatever errors in the life of Christians, is that we easily commit to the idea that everything happens is just the course of events that are cosmic um, randomness. And so we just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, you know, everything that's happening in my life today is just a, a, a natural, you know, thing that happens. It, like the wind changing direction, it, you know. But and, and we miss the fact that God is currently doing things in our lives. We're certainly not going to recognize every one of them. But, for instance, uh, the day that uh, after uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, the religious leaders demanded of him or asked of him to perform a sign from heaven. Uh, they they were certainly felt themselves cornered by the fact that he could feed 5,000 and Jesus became very popular for this miracle. So, they asked him for a sign from heaven, like a, a sign of manna. He said, well, you can make bread on earth, make bread come down from heaven. And Jesus actually here points their eyes to the heavens. And he says, you can discern the weather. In other words, and he, he doesn't give them any supernatural ability to, to, to uh, judge the weather. He says, look, when you see a storm cloud, you know it's going to storm. When you see a clear sky, you know it's going to be a good day or a a fair day. So he turns their eyes to heaven, showing them that they can discern storm clouds and clear skies. But after all that they had seen him do, they could not recognize who he was. So they said, give us a sign from heaven. He said, look, see that storm cloud? You can see that a storm is coming, yet you cannot discern who I am. And the reason why he could make such a comparison, because it's pretty easy, if you see a big, black, ominous thundercloud, yeah, you know a storm is coming. But if you were a Pharisee, a Sadducee, uh, that knew the Old Testament so well, uh, that if you saw this man produce all the miracles that he did, how could you not, and the teaching that he did, how could you not discern that he was the Messiah? So he says in Matthew 16:3, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but can't discern the signs of the times? <clears throat> and this applies to us in which, you know, we in our own lives do we see all the work that God does. 
and which he does quite a bit on a daily basis. And of course, we, we can't see all of it, as I said, but we should expect it. And for this, we should not have uh, boring lives. <clears throat> Throughout all the scripture, there isn't a time or a generation where God isn't doing mighty deeds. There's not one. There are uh, too many to speak of, as the psalmist says, who could discern them, or actually, as he says in verse 2, who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? There's more than we can fathom. And so the question for us is, what has he done in our life? Uh, and in prayer is a time to think about that. It's one of the applications of prayers to speak to God about your own history and in your own personal life and try to discern the work that he has done in your life uh, and possibly in the life of others. What has he done in your life? What is he doing right now? Uh, and it, I, I, it's easier to look at the past because you're looking at a long period of time in a short period of time. Uh, and so it's, it's easier, I think, to look at God's working in the past. But if God was working in the past, as he was working with Israel, is he working in my life right now? And the answer is obviously, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so the next question is, if he's working in my life now, am I aware of those works? Or am I just going through the motions of my compartmentalized life? Uh, meaning I just go from one thing to the next to the next, shrugging my shoulders the whole way, not in expectation of a life of abundance that he has given me. Because God is not limited. Does he ever stop working in our lives? He's not limited. And Jesus made us aware of this when he gave us, and it's a teaching that we all remember because it's so simple and beautiful, when he told us to remember the sparrows and the grass, and the lilies. And he said, <clears throat> concerning them, does your father not care for them on a day-by-day -day basis, and aren't you more important than they are? So he said, don't be concerned with earthly things, but seek first his kingdom. Uh, he also uh, said that our hairs were numbered, which the hairs of our head are numbered, meaning that each individual hair that we have it has an individual number by God, and that is a magnificent way and a magnificent image to show us that God is intricately in knowledge of everything, way more than we are, about what's going on with us. And so in this, this part of this prayer in Psalm 106 is discerning the work of the Lord, turns into discerning the work in history, history of Israel, history of the world, and discerning the work of God in my own history and my own current history. And by that, my life would not become this boring, going through the motions, compartmentalized life. And then I would be expecting of God every day. My fellowship with him, my communication with him, all of which are supernatural things. And what is he going to show me today as I read his word, as I study his word, as I fellowship with him, as I pray to him, what am I going to see? What is he going to do? And all of that comes from this psalm, which should be an intricate part of our prayer life. <clears throat> also, we are reminded that uh, the Father is at work in our life every day, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are praying for you every day. If they're praying for you, they're concerned about you. If the whole Trinity is talking about you, they're concerned about you. And therefore, they're also working in your life in ways that some of which I think we can see if we have discerning eyes and <clears throat> some of which are, you know, are, are too much, maybe too subtle, maybe too many that, that we could possibly discern. <clears throat> uh, in Philippians 2, uh, Paul writes that God is in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. So that's another thing to remember, that God indwells me. So if God indwells me, why wouldn't he be working in me every day? And these are things that we should praise him for. And if we miss that, if we miss this right off the top from this psalm, if we miss thanking him and praising him for his work in my life, 
then my life will become non-supernatural. My life will become one of the world. I won't be much different than the people of the world who do not see God working in their lives. In fact, reject God completely. And if I'm not discerning enough, I notice when I turn to the Psalms, there's a reason why God puts these Psalms in the Scripture. <clears throat> if I turn to Psalm 106 and say I haven't thanked God in a while, you know, the Psalm reminds me to do it. And what the Psalms here tell us, just like the Lord's Prayer tells us, is you know, don't wait to feel thankful to tell God you're thankful. Be thankful. When you're reminded to be thankful, be thankful. And if you don't feel thankful, think about it. Uh, think about his history. Think about his law. Think about your own history. Think about your redemption in Christ in the, fu- in the future, uh, our future history, which is in heaven with God forever. Um, but really, on the new earth with God forever. Uh, the, you know, all of those things would make you thankful. And therefore, when we become unthankful and we do not praise God for the works in our lives, it is uh, a problem that is in this psalm that was a major problem with Israel, which was their forgetfulness. They just, God would bless them. They'd feel elated when they knew, you know, when God would, after they entered the promised land, and they didn't kick all the Canaanites out. They didn't remove, they didn't purge the land. They were supposed to purge the land. They didn't do it. And so the book of Judges is about a land unpurged and how Israel had to deal with a land that they refused to purge. And it's kind of like our own soul that we refuse to purge out of it the sins that we're secretly in love with. Uh, and God would send a judge and deliver them. Once they were delivered, they would rejoice and then just give them a few years and then they forget. And this is a big problem with us, which these Psalms help us not to forget. All right, next in verse 3 is prayer in search of complete commitment to keeping God's commands more faithfully. Psalm 106, verse 3. How blessed are those who keep justice. Now remember, he started this off with praise the Lord, who can thank the Lord, or who can speak of all his deeds. So this is really a prayer psalm. And in this prayer, he says, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Uh, This at all times is not an Old Testament concept that's not in the New. Completely in the New, uh, it's all throughout the Scripture. What does at all times mean? It means a complete commitment. Complete of all my body, soul, and spirit is a complete commitment. My whole person, I'm one person, immaterial and material, that are to be, all of me is committed to, to his way. This again is not going to make me sinless, but commitment means that I have given over to God my complete allegiance and my complete obedience. Um, what so many don't understand in Christianity is this complete commitment is required of all believers, not just some elite group, not just the guys with the halos on their heads that are in the oil paintings. It is required of all believers and in everything. There's too much, you know, modern Christianity has neglected huge chunks of the Bible and they've satisfied themselves with a very limited commitment, even if we could call it that. But uh, this is a a direct result of God's grace. So the first thing that is hard to understand, not hard, but the first thing that a lot of people don't understand, believers don't understand, is that this is complete commitment. The other thing that's not understood is that this is grace. There's been a huge disconnect. And because of what grace means, grace means that God has bestowed all favor upon his people without merit. In other words, he has not asked us to do anything to receive these marvelous gifts that he's given us. Faith in Christ is us holding out our hands to receive his gift. 
<clears throat> and so what it, it's been a very good trick by the kingdom of darkness, and it has continued to plague the church. Uh, this happened very, in the very early church, just like all false doctrines did, is that grace is um, distorted into the idea that uh, a, a partial commitment or lack of commitment is okay. Right? It's okay with God. And, and actually, it's argued that it's the right thing to do because it appeals to the world. Right? So if I have a sinful lifestyle, a worldly lifestyle, and I can say, hey, you know, it's just like the Corinthians. They say, like, hey, it's all grace. I'm completely covered. My sins are forgiven, and <clears throat> which it's true. I'm covered. My sins are forgiven. I have eternal life. I'm cleansed. I'm holy. And so I don't have to commit to God in any moral or ethical way. And we think this appeals to the world. So like the sinful world is going to say, wow, Christianity sounds fun now. And it is it appeals to nobody. It, it, it only shows weakness because this actually isn't what grace means. Grace does not mean that, uh, 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 sorry, grace does not mean live as you please, uh, do as you want, and sin away. And grace will cover you. Grace does not mean that. Uh, <clears throat> the meaning of this, or the thought of this, is that the repercussions to a sinful life will be minimal. Uh, but a worse repercussion to this is people say, well, look, you're not going to suffer all that much. And people buy into this, and then after over time they suffer greatly. And they're like, well, where was the pro- this promise of an easy life under grace, right? And it wasn't there. God didn't give the promise. False teachers did. What's also worse about this is that God sanctions it. The idea that God sanctions a a sinful life and calls it grace, where do you find that in the Scripture? You only find it in false teachers. Just as worse is the conclusion that this way of life is attractive to the world and therefore would help evangelism. That my sinful life is actually a vehicle for the gospel. And that doesn't come from the word of God. It comes from false teachers. So, we have to ask ourselves, what is grace? And in in light of this uh, part of the petition in Psalm 106, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Uh, this word blessed is used in Psalm 1, which is the end part of the introduction to the Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 is the introduction. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And blessed are the, is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And loves the law. Delights is the word. Delights in the law of God. That's the blessed one. So, <clears throat> how does this go along with Grace. Very important to understand. Grace is God giving to you. He has given you His Son. That's His greatest gift to us. God did not think, this is amazing when, you, when, when it's put this way, that God did not think His Son too costly for our salvation. <clears throat> God did not think His Son too costly for our salvation. So God gave you his son. But what comes with the son is the son's way, truth, and life. I take this from John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the question is, if these are gifts, we have the son's way, which uh, the word way there is a word that means road or highway. Truth, aletheia, which is the word for truth, and life. But this is Christ's life. This is, in the opening, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, the life that came into the world that was the light of men. And so all three, if, you know, if, if Jesus is these things, and these things have been given to us, so how do we receive these things fully? A person says, well, look, I'm under the grace of God. Well, that means you're under the gifts of God. Say a person says, I am 
all about the grace of God or I am fully under the grace of God. That means that you're fully under the gifts of God. And how do we receive them fully? How do we receive the Son's way fully? Uh, how do we, and what is that way? It's the way living. Uh, and, and from Hebrews, 9, Hebrews 10, 19, it's the new and living way that Christ opened for us. In Hebrews 10, it says that Christ opened the door so that we could walk this way. How do we understand and walk in the new and living way that Christ opened for us? To truth. How do we accumulate and understand all truth? Right? Not, to, not just memorizing the words of, of doctrine. That's an aletheia, the Greek word here, means... Uh, you know, what is the truths that is behind or are? What are the truths that are behind all of these doctrines? What are the truths that are behind all of these words in the scripture? <clears throat> how do we live that? How do we uh, accumulate and understand all truth? And then finally, Christ is the way, truth, and life. How do we live the life of Christ fully? So if I say, I'm under the grace of God. Well, how do you receive all the gifts of God fully? If the gift of God is his son, and the son's way, truth, and life. Well, we know the answer to that. We fully commit our entire lives, every part of our lives, and fully obey his commandments. How am I, you know, how am I going to walk in this new and living way if I'm disobedient? How would I understand it? How would I know truth if I'm disobedient to truth? How would I know life if I don't live it? You wouldn't. So if grace is God giving to us without cost, i.e. unmerited favor, and it is, receiving all of them in their fullness is the means of living under the grace of God fully. <clears throat> and so when we come to the Lord's Prayer, which I'm going to tie into all of these as we go along, the, uh, the uh, second petition is your will be done. No, the third one. The second one is your kingdom come. The third one is your will be done. Your will be done. In what? In my life. I'm requesting that. How, God? Uh, And that's that's why the Lord's Prayer is the skeleton upon which you can build all of these prayers that we learn about. They're all tied into it. Uh, When I say your will be done, it's essentially me saying, I choose to receive all your grace. Because your grace is your way, your life, your truth. And if I want all of those, I have to follow you. You know, that's where Christ said life is. Pick up your cross and follow me. Lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. You'll find what? Life. And so grace is your will be done. It's actually, and as God says in 1 Peter 5, God gives grace to the humble. So this petition revolves around the desire for a further commitment to God's commands and to live God's commands more fully. And so that comes from, again, it's the grace of God. Psalm 106, verse 3. How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. All right. So what do we have so far? Thankfulness, <clears throat> uh, praise of God, and prayer for commitment. And then the prayers to be delivered. Uh, all right. So when then we come to know uh, Psalm 106.4, moving on. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation. Now, from a person who's saved, we're not asking for more salvation. What we're asking for is deliverance. Deliverance or to be saved from a certain situation, a certain sin, a certain weakness, what have you. So remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones. So this is the prosperity that God's people have. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So this is now getting us to petitions. 
or asking concerning the grace of God according to his promise. Remember me and visit me with deliverance. As he says here, as you've always done, uh, <clears throat> visit me with your salvation. Uh, let's see. Uh, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones. Uh, where is that? Visit me. I may his glory. Why isn't that? I'm missing that. Whatever. All right. So uh, this in the Lord's Prayer, this would be lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the that. Uh, we'll clarify that more when we get there. When he says lead us not into temptation, he means the temptation of the devil. It's particular to the word he uses there. Lead us not into the devil's temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Here, this is uh, <clears throat> us praying that God's grace would deliver us from whatever it is. Uh, the psalmist here can be quite general, whereas gen- when, for us, uh, when we're looking for deliverance for something, then uh, we're, we're usually specific. <clears throat> the, prosper- the petition, sorry, now, notice this point also, which might come out to you, he says in verse 5, that I, may, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones. So this could mean that he wants to see other people prosper, which is absolutely a biblical theme. Uh, but in this context, it would mean that he seeks the prosperity that the other chosen ones have. And what that means is, is that he seeks the prosperity of God's chosen people but he doesn't want more. And that's real important. That we must not want more than what God would give to his chosen ones. Uh, we wouldn't want more than what he would give someone else. That's competitive. And that is not a part of this life. Uh, the psalmist doesn't seek more. He also doesn't seek less. You know, in some kind of false humility or some kind of asceticism. Uh, He seeks the blessing of God, which is absolutely legit here. But, of course, it's whatever God's blessing is to his chosen ones. So he's not seeking for a particular blessing that he's lustful for uh, or or is, um, you know, wants for his own uses. He just wants what God gives to his people that blessing. He doesn't want more of it. He doesn't want less of it. You know, what are the obedient people of God see and enjoy in life? And that's what he wants. That's what we all should want. Not more, not less. So this would fall under the category of give us today our daily bread. Your will, Father, and what you want to give me, that is good enough. And I don't need more or I definitely don't want less. All right, so, and I think we have two more. We can at least do this this one, next one, which is confession. In Psalm 106.6, the writer of the psalm, who certainly could not have done the same sins, I mean, I wouldn't think so. Well, certainly not in the exact same manner. But he says in verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers. And when we read through the rest of the psalm, we find out that, you know, it's the sins of the exodus through the wilderness, the sins of Israel when they go into the promised land, the sins of Israel when they won't clear out the promised land, their idol worship, and so on. Uh, and, you know, so we would say, well, you know, does he, would he really have done those sins? But he says here, we have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. So the psalmist here, though he may not have sinned in the same manner of his ancestors, he knows he's a sinner. And he knows that for the, for no, there's no way that he would be acquitted of sins. So in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord tells us, you know, part of this daily prayer that the Lord gave us, forgive us our iniquities and our debts. As in Matthew, it's forgive us our iniquities or forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. No, in Matthew, it's debts. Forgive us our debts. In Luke, in Luke 11, it's forgive us our iniquities. So we combine them together. Forgive us our iniquities and our debts. Our debts are to God. 
Every time that we sin, we have a debt against him. But thankfully, that debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. So when we're confessing our sins, we're not actually uh, asking for forgiveness. We're not seeking forgiveness. What we're seeking is overcoming uh, and to uh, bear those sins before God in the light, uh, to have them dealt with between me and God. Both areas of weakness that are general and specific sins that I've committed that I remember at least, because there'll be a bunch that you don't remember or, or don't know of, that uh, you deal with them and you're openly to the Father on a daily basis. Because we're sinners on a daily basis. I'm complete belief of that. That there isn't a Christian who lives a sinless day. I know some disagree with me on that, uh, but whatever. Uh, I, I am pretty convinced of that. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I understand that some sin more than others. But none of us are sinless on any waking, uh, whatever waking time. Uh, when we take into account the things that we should have done that we didn't do, the fact that the sins of the mind often center around difficult things to discern, like false motivation, self-deception, uh, wrong motivation, doing even the right things that we've done that we do them for the wrong reason. Uh, how could you discern all of that and discern every little sin or even every big sin? Uh, and so we'll always have sins to confess on a daily basis. And they're just like the sins of our fathers. And why is that? Well, we weren't in the same situation of our ancestors. Neither was the psalmist. But their sins of pride, their sins of doubt, their sins of lust, their sins of uh, arrogance, their sins of self-absorption, their sins of selfishness. And on and on it goes, and all of us uh, are in the same boat. We commit them. And so for confession, as I put up here, the reason is we don't confess for judicial reasons, as if God is waiting for us to confess a sin so we can take it off your debt calendar or your debt ledger. You know, and we're told in Colossians 2 that the certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us was nailed to the cross, having been taken out of the way. And so this isn't a judicial thing. This is a cleansing thing. In other words, we're <clears throat> cleansing our conscience. Uh, we're also taking full responsibility, which is important, that we're not blaming others. We're not blaming our parents. We're not blaming our upbringing. Uh, people with addictions love to blame others and say, well, this is my, you know, I inherited this from my dad or I, I inherited this from the house I grew up in. And while it may be true that you're at a great disadvantage because of your parents and your upbringing, the choice to do th- certain things, the certain sins, actually not certain sins, all sins, the choice to do them are fully our own And so we cleanse our conscience of guilt. We claim there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We take full responsibility. We find foundational causes. You know, why do I keep doing that? What is the reason why I do that? Why did I get bitter? Why did I get angry? And you're confessing this before God. You're bringing it out into the open. And all of this is leading towards us overcoming. It's not a judicial thing. There's no promise that you get filled with the Holy Spirit when you confess a sin. That's not in the Scripture. It's a a man-made doctrine. It's it's not there. Uh, But what is uh, there is confession. And here in our Lord's Prayer, in 1 John 1, 9, in the Old Testament as well, that confession was, was always done. And we confess to God for the the purpose of overcoming. I'll talk more about this tomorrow as we we uh, pick up the last part of this psalm. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your in this psalm. Thank you for prayer and revealing to us how to pray, what to pray for, and to develop for ourselves a life of prayer, which, as we will see, as you're continuing to show us, 
we're already at a point now where we have probably more than what we could pray for on a daily, like in a day, but yet we have much to pray for over our lives. May we see these important themes, the things that we should pray for, so that we will um, take full advantage of this life, this life of prayer with you, and this conversation with you that is lifelong. And uh, Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I'm playing, praying real slowly before Christ gets... Uh, Christ, it's not Christ, it's Chris in the booth. Hi! Sorry, everybody, if you're listening. I'm not, I'm not being flippant. I'm waiting for the booth person. In Christ's name we pray, amen.